Hi, how are you? Uh, you find me lunchtime on Monday, the 22nd of November. To my left, I have my, uh, my neighbour Richard, who's on his sit-on lawnmower, which he takes out a couple of times a week. I think he thinks he's going on a, a little day trip for the day. It's lovely. He's in his 80s, so, you know, I will him on. It's so good. Uh, and he's getting some fresh air as well. Uh, to my right, my husband is walking downstairs in his studio, so you might hear that kind of <laughs> in the background, which I'm not going to stop because it sounds awesome. Um, but welcome along to another episode of my podcast, Soundtracking. It's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you for choosing to listen to uh, our episode if this is your first or if you're joining us for, uh, I don't know, you've been here since the start and you've listened to all 277 so far. It's crazy, uh, but we are so proud of it. Um, we love making it. And we love how every episode is a unique being, has a different, unique conversation about music and film and TV and many other things as well along the way. So we are very grateful that you have uh, taken the time to listen to us and we would appreciate your support as well along the way, be that by telling your friends about us or by uh, leaving a comment, rating us, giving us a review on iTunes or any of the other platforms. So thank you in advance. Now, um, I have had a busy old couple of weeks doing various interviews and things for the podcast. We've got some great guests coming up um, and I'm slightly giddy actually because I am on my way after I've done this to head into London town to host a couple of Q&As, one with the fantastic team behind Sensor, of which we had the uh, composer, Emily Levinis-Farouche on. And I'm looking forward to chatting to the director and also Neve Algar, the leading actress who stars in it tonight. And then I'm off to uh, Denis Villeneuve, double bill. Double Q&As with Denis and his creative team behind June. So um, that's what's happening in my real life. Uh, but what's happening on soundtracking? Well, it's kind of the crossing of real life and work because our latest guest on soundtracking is a very dear friend of mine who I am delighted and proud to say has done an absolutely superb job with his feature film debut. The movie is Pirates and that friendly question is writer, director Reggie Yates. Now the film stars uh, these three young kind of quite unknown actors who I promise you will become your new favourite people on screen. They are phenomenal together. So great they are. Elliot Edusa, Jordan Peters and Reda Elizur. Pirates tells the story of three young friends trying to get into a nightclub on New Year's Eve in 1999. The Garage soundtrack is phenomenal, of which plenty more shortly. Before that, listen, it's always nice when you get invited onto other people's podcasts and I've had a lovely time chatting on a number of great pods. One of those is Blank Podcast, hosted by author Giles Paley Phillips and comedian Jim Daly. Now, the first thing is that Giles and Jim are brilliant and funny and they really create a wonderful atmosphere for your chat when you go on to be a guest and to listen to it is wonderful. Uh, on the show, Giles and Jim really encourage you to... Share how you got through those blank moments in life and work. You know what I mean, when things aren't going quite right. Now, the names they've had on so far are, well, pretty impressive. Um, people like Comedy Genii, Nick Offerman, Reese Darby and Dawn French, to name but a few, uh, with many, many more available to listen to now. And coming up, they've got a great selection of guests, including the brilliant Phil Wang and the stupendous... Wendy McClendon Covey, who, amongst many things, you will know as Rita from Bridesmaids. So go and have a listen. Search for Blank Podcasts now, wherever you get your podcasts. And so to Reggie and that garage soundtrack for Pirates. And we'll begin with one of the tunes from the film, Hyperfunk by Antonio. Funk. 
Reggie Yates, welcome to Sound Tracking to yes, talk about ready. your feature film. Hey! <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Awesome to hear you say that. As a fan of the podcast and as a fan of you, that's the coolest thing in the world. So thank you. I'm so many things for you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. I'm so excited for you. You've made an amazing film. It's it's uh it's a lot of things it's it's funny it's entertaining it's slick it's great it's just shows off some new talent it reminds you of some great music it's got its own style it's just yeah it's it's so great it's so congratulations uh you're are you trying to do the this is your life you're gonna cry because I am, yeah, after that intro, I'm probably going to burst into tears. No, um, honestly, thank you. That means the world coming from you. Um, we've spent many an hour dissecting film and chatting about music. Um, so for you to say that means a lot. I mean, I'm really excited about this film. I'm really excited about people seeing it. I- I'm just super excited about what this could be for those young actors that are leading it, because this is the start of their career. And weirdly, it's the start of a new part of mine. But mm-hmm. they're front and center. Yeah. And I'm just really excited for them because everybody see just how brilliant they are. What was the catalyst? I know that there's been a lot going on behind the scenes for you in terms of writing and 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 may, and, and telling stories in different narrative forms over the years, over the last what, maybe 10, 15 years particularly. But what was the catalyst to to taking that step into feature film, not just writing, but directing as well? Was there a specific thing, person, moment that helped you take that step forward really it was um uh, getting a bit more money to make a short film and feeling the difference in having more time and being able to uh have a cast member um like jessica hines you know um, i made four mm-hmm. short films in the lead up to pirates and 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 saying off the back of the, the short film shelter that i made with tossing cole and jessica hines who are two incredible actors oh my God, this feels different now that I've got five days, now that I've got a bit of a budget, I've got a bigger crew. Um, The film is 20 or 15 minutes long. Um, I can tell more of a story. I just decided off the back of that, that I had to do this on a grander scale because it just feels so much more fulfilling to be able to tell a story over a hundred minutes or, you know, at feature length as opposed to trying to cram it all into a short film. What was the catalyst to Pirates telling that story? I recognised off the back of, this is quite morbid, but it's the truth, so I'll tell you, um, there was a funeral 
And the film is dedicated to uh, the, the person who passed, um, Neil Reed, who was a pal of mine who I grew up with, who used to manage the UK garage crew that I was in when I was a teenager. <laughs> and Neil um, was the most mature one out of all of us and the first one to pass his driving test. So we had a car and he was our chauffeur and he was our manager. And he basically had our clubhouse on wheels. Um, and Neil passed away. And there was a bunch of me, a bunch of um, myself and my friends gathered together at his funeral. And we were just stood there reminiscing about the old days and about what it was like to go to clubs and what it was like watching Neil dance. <laughs> and that just really um, snowballed this idea in my head that what we were a part of uh, at that moment in our lives, those formative years were really, really unique and special. And they'd never been captured on film before because at the heart of it was friendship, at the heart of it was joy. And mm. what we continually see is trauma when it comes to stories that have young black men at the center of it. And we had so much fun and all we could do was smile and laugh when we were reminiscing. So I thought, there is something in this. And I'm just really pleased that Neil's wife um, is really uh, approving and, and happy about the film and that it's been embraced in so many ways by so many people from the scene because they were formative years and that moment that we realized how special it was as a group of friends, I'm so glad is now in this one movie, you know? What a wonderful way to cement that person and his influence on you all as well. It's lovely, what a lovely thing to do. So who are you more, more, who's based on you then? Or are you, or are they, are they all bits of you, Capo, Two-Tone and Kidda? They're all bits of me. Uh, even yeah. the, 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 the lady at the Caribbean takeaway restaurant, she's a bit of me as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, you, can't, <laughs> you can't help but um, put a bit of you in every character that you write. Yeah. And there are certainly um, elements of me when it comes to all three of the boys. But more than anything, I've pulled from the world that I existed within, from friends that I met when I moved to South London at 14, to the boys I grew up with in North London, it's all in there and it's just really lovely to see these young actors take that and make it something else again because you know I'm not 18 anymore far from it and the boys uh, are a lot closer to what it means to be that age and go through yeah. those formative years so yeah it's an amalgamation of my life and then the collaboration with the actors have made those characters what they are. It feels like and I said this to you when when I phoned you after watching it just sort of telling you how brilliant I thought it was, was that it feels like uh, it's kind of almost a bit three musketeers in a way and that it's not, it's not a leading man. These three actors, they really kind of work together. And in terms of casting that, I, I was really interested. I will go into music in a minute, but I just wanted to talk to you about the film generally anyway, because it's just so good. But with Elliot and Jordan and, and Reda, those three characters, as a collective, they work brilliantly together. They, they have this kind of, um, they almost kind of fit, in, in a timeline, they've got their own moments in a timeline almost, but individually they also work as well in the moments within the film where it's about their story and their narrative. When you were casting that, how was that something you were thinking about in terms of how they'd work individually, but how they'd work as a group? So I worked with Shaheen Baig, who, uh, in my humble opinion, is one of the most amazing casting directors ever. And when I was an actor, Shaheen Baig wasn't operating as a casting director. And I wish I'd met her because mm. she amazing with young talent she's incredible at finding fresh faces and also maintains a relationship with young 
talent and encourages them in a really beautiful way. So she's had her eyes on these boys for years. And <laughs> so many people come through for the auditions. And in my mind, as a, as a writer and director, having it quite concrete in my mind what these actors should look like or what the parts should be once played mm -hmm. uh, was completely blown to pieces the minute these three boys walked in the room. And interestingly, Elliot came, Elliot who plays, um, who plays Capo was reading for another role. He was reading for, uh, for Kidder and it just felt wrong. And the minute that we gave him the right role to read, there was no one else that could play that part. Same with Jordan. When Jordan walked in the room, it was like, oh my God, you're two ton. When Red walked in the room, I like, my casting director had to stop me from giving them the roles in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was really beautiful when we did the chemistry test because the minute that we pulled them together it was just magic they just they were just all over each other and loved each other straight away and it was beautiful to watch did you stick to script in those situations or did you give them a little bit of of freedom to kind of improv and play and and you know well, um, we're a tiny movie, so we didn't have much time. And, you know, you yeah. speak to any filmmaker, they'll always say, we wish we had more time, regardless of whether it's 2 million or 200 million. So my plan was always to make sure we scheduled enough time to shoot the scene as written, but also mm -hmm. shoot an improvised version of the scene. And because these guys are so awesome, uh, the improvised versions of the scene in some sequences were almost better than what, I was, what I'd written. So um, the film is an amalgamation of improvisation and, and written lines. And um, it's nice to be able to jump from one to the yeah. other. And also it was really lovely to be able to do what I've seen some of my writing, directing heroes do over the years and, you know, shout lines in and get them to, to do them in the moment. You know, I've seen so much behind the scenes of John Apatow doing that. I thought, what would happen if I did? And they responded yeah. and losing it. And it was just like, oh my God, this works. This is great. <laughs> um, so some really beautiful stuff came from just being loose and allowing them to play. But they're, they're able to feel com confident and comfortable in that situation because you've you've informed the characters for them through the script and through what you've written. So they know, you know, the, the, the boundaries of those characters and where they can go within that. It needs your framework there in the first place. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was great to be able to hear them say my lines, but it was even better to hear them take the character in a new direction with lines I didn't think of. You mentioned Judd Apatow. Were there any, what, who were the kind of filmmakers that you would say helped you find your voice and find find the film that you wanted to make really you know from either watching or you know speaking I, to them or yeah and no, I mean I've said this before um and I really stand by it it's Matthew Kasovitz all the way man um he made La Haine, which is a film that I know we've spoken about it's just incredibly influential for me uh, in a lot of ways because um that film, there's a lot of that film in this movie from the timestamps to some of the more tableau moments where the boys are sort of sat in front of quite a set up shot, like the snail in Tottenham. And, you know, there's lots of sort of moments where I've, um, I've said thank you to Mr. Kasovitz throughout this film, because when I saw La Hen at 14, I realised that stories about boys from the inner city can be cinematic. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to see that for London and hadn't felt I'd seen it in my way. I mean, don't get me wrong, what, um, what Joe did, Joe Cornish did with Attack the Block was incredibly influential for me. It was amazing to watch that and go, oh my God, look at this, this looks amazing. He made John Boyega look like a superhero. It was incredible. <laughs> um, and I loved it, but I just always knew I'd do it slightly differently. And, yeah. you know, just seeing all of these different London movies um, made me recognize that there is a story to be told my way, you know?
let's talk about music. I mean, oh my God, it's like there is so much great music in this film. And it's that brilliant thing where, I mean, for me, that music's so representative of of my London. You know, okay, I moved to London when I was, what, 21? And this whole kind of, that whole scene was kind of, for me, was was a real, it's a real window of, of kind of my life at a certain point. And oh, I laughed so much at certain parts, like that line, where he says, I'm just going to watch MTV bass in my stolen clothes and head to lick <laughs> I was crying with laughter. And it's not even that funny a line, really, but it's if you know that whole, and it's just, oh, God, I'm crying thinking about it now. It's so funny. Um, but there are so many moments like that as well that involve music and whether it's the Simply Red kind of, you know, in the backseat of the car or the the Omar, just comedy timing is just brilliant. And then this whole the film opens with the with the kind of um with Doom's Night, you know, and and you're kind of like, yes, <laughs> let's yeah. go, kind of thing. It's obviously so important to the film. It's it's got it's got that um uh I've forgotten the word now diegetic kind of um presence in there as well as it kind of having other purposes. Where yeah. did you start with music and what was the journey with music with the film? The dream was always to use UK Garage's score, but we didn't have enough money to use all of the records that I wanted to use. So what you hear in the movie is maybe. 40% of the records that were in the original cut. Um, Jesus, there's had... like 25 in there already. Christ on a bike. Yeah, I, I went a little bit over budget with what I wanted to put in there. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I, I completely forgot that we were a low budget British film and <laughs> didn't have that much money for to pay for the licensing. So what we did that was quite cool was that um, I brought a friend to the table uh, who used to be uh, a UK garage producer and still had all of the sounds and all of the uh, the bits and pieces that he used to make those records with. And we got him to create original records that we could also use alongside the songs that we could afford. But the dream was to always elevate those records to the most cinematic uh, version of themselves as possible. So like Little Bit of Luck is so dramatic when you think about that long intro, when you think about MC Neat over the top and where we use it in the movie, it's it's almost as if it was written for the movie, you know, with a little yeah. bit of you can make it through the night. And we've just got that long drone that we take from the song and we loop it and we use it in different places. And when the beat kicks in, it, it's not there, you know, because it's not necessary for the scene, you know, that beat drop doesn't exist in Pirates. It's just the drone in the intro because it's scored. <laughs> Tanani, 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 Tanani,
So I've always felt that garage records and not to get into a real sort of geeky territory, but there's this structure, you know, there's the build up, there's the breakdown and then there's the drop. And when you look at a record like Battle by Wookiee, for instance, you know, it's so cinematic hearing that doom, doom. I'm feeling that build up and then you get to this big bit where the vocal comes in and it's just euphoric and I've never seen those records used that way so I always knew that if I got an opportunity to make a film I would use garage records or grime records or some of these records that I know could do that and when I was pirates it was like okay I guess we're going to do it all with garage then brilliant as well Antonio is just like I mean there's so many I can't wait to like buy the vinyl I hope there's (laughs) going to be a vinyl release of all this kind of as a compilation because it's so great and was the idea then that you the the person you were talking about with regards to kind of almost reimagining and sounds and things of that time kind of a composer then on the film in a way now that's exactly what he is, yeah. So Kevin came on board, uh, Kevin McPherson, who is a friend of mine and is a musician, uh, came on board as a composer. And it's the first yeah. time he's composed for film, but he composed music on two or three of my shorts. And he's incredibly talented with it. And um, yeah, it just it just elevated the film in so many ways, just being able to have those additional bits that we could break down. And, you know, like in the, in the scene where there's that punch without giving away too much in the street, that was one track that we took so many different elements from and used in the build up to the actual big moment itself. And yeah, it's just really lovely being able to use commercial music as score. Well, it's interesting because when you think about previous directors who have done a similar thing, you know, you think of Tarantino, you think of Edgar Wright and stuff. And I think Tarantino really kind of reinvented the use of existing music in film, you know, when he started with, 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 and it was kind of like, oh, wow, we can do this. It can have a purpose that's not a score, that's not as just a needle drop in a track. It's kind of wrapped around the narrative. It's wrapped around the performances. In terms of 
directors using music in their films? Was there, were, were, was he an influence or were there any specific influences with how, you know, looking at how music's used in films specifically? My God, I don't think that there's any director my age that hasn't been influenced by it. <laughs> you know, I think they'd be lying if they said, oh yeah, I, I think I saw Paul Kitchen once. <laughs> Come on, really? <laughs> um, of course, those rec- those those films have um, influenced the way in which I hear music. And you know, when you watch something like Baby Driver, for instance, you just think, "Oh man, this is um this is really beautiful how music is being used in this way." Particularly commercial tracks, songs you recognise being yeah. used and cut to the picture and cut to beat. But also advertorial, you know, like the work of Gondry and how he used music in some of his adverts randomly or even some of the old Fincher adverts you know how he used music as well like commercials as well have been a huge influence on me in terms of how music and picture can go together and do something really beautiful remember that Guinness ad with the horses yeah he waits that's what he does I'll tell you what tick followed talk followed tick followed talk followed tick Ahab says, I don't care who you are, here's to your dream. The old sailors return to the bar. Here's to you, Ahab! And the fat drummer hit the beat with all his heart. to waiting yeah that's incredible yeah that was unbelievable unbelievable that was was that tick bolo's talk was that that one i can't that, remember but it was just off. kind of like oh what's this film oh it's an advert <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> been super super creative and original um and incredibly influential to me for sure did you have everybody asking for cameos in the film because there's quite a few cameos in the film so did you have to kind of just close set at one point where it was like guys <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the truth is no because to begin with <laughs> there was this massive sort of ah Reg, Reg, should we should we trust Reg do we trust him because for a lot of these garage guys I was to begin with I was just a raver I was a fan and then I was a garage MC myself and we would get in on the bill with some of these guys like to have PSG uh, be the MC in the big club scene at the end completely forget that he and I went back to back at God Made Me Sexy <laughs> Garage Night. <laughs> what a great <laughs> name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we emceed back to back. And I was like 20 at the time. <laughs> Are you choking at God Made Me Sexy? Edith, God Made Me Sexy, right? <laughs> and it made me feel very, Oh my very God. But yeah, like PSG and I, we went back to back as MCs and then I was suddenly directing it on the night, you know. But in a real practical sense, COVID just got in the way. So we had a few people go, okay, cool, we'll come down and we'll do a bit. And they were like, oh my God, this is going to be so much fun. This is amazing. And they went and told everyone. And then suddenly the entire scene were like, can we get involved? But COVID hit. So we had to have limited numbers on set and we just... We couldn't, like, I'm just really glad that we got the club scene done before the pandemic because yeah. we wouldn't have been able to put 200, 250 people in a club after lockdown. You know? How was filming that club scene? 
the best thing ever. I mean, there's like <laughs> videos online uh, and on social media where basically you've got the cameras and then you've got the crowd and behind the cameras, you've got the entire crew and the entire crew are having a better time than the crowd. Because people, Edith, people came in on their day off to come and party because we were shooting at a Ministry of Sound in the main room. We had Pied Pipe DJ, MC Creed, MC PSG, MC. And my direction to them was, just do a set. Just don't worry about the cameras, just do a set. So they just awesome. DJ. And so the crowd were just going off. They were like, oh my God, these flipping legends are just going crazy in front of our own eyes. And they were just watching them and, and they forgot about the cameras. It was just a club night, but we would break it occasionally to move the camera position. So it was, yeah, it was just the best night ever. It was a lot of fun. Had to have Spoonie in there as well. Of course, of course. Oh my God. It's, it's actually quite funny because you know what Spoonie's like. Jonathan's like, <laughs> I would have never DJed it as he kills, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think the club that we made him DJ in the movie was slick enough for him. <laughs> Dream Team were like top-notch, super shiny, super plush. They embodied everything that Garage was. Like they'd wear like suits to DJ. And we put him in a club in Peckham in the movie. And I don't know if he loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love that line as well where you use like uh, the the music is is part of the narrative the the dialogue as well where it's, I think he says oh she knows all the words to Gangsta's Paradise she's a special one it's just like oh <laughs> so good yeah. so good I wrote loads of lines down that just made me um made me laugh so much I haven't seen a Carter right well I I haven't seen a Carter Ribena forever which is not a line in the film but when they had when the when the Ribena carton came out I was just like. Oh my god! Yeah, uh, the, the whole production design as well with the film. Yeah, the coolest thing about it was that the the, the production designers actually went and got time specific stuff and pulled them together. So mm. you know, obviously, still exists, but they got a '90s carton and made it. And even you know, there's so many details in the bedroom of Two Ton that you kind of only really see in the background. But he actually, we we found some pictures. We I found some pictures of my teenage bedroom. And I gave it to Francesca, um, who was running all of my production design, and she basically recreated my bedroom. So they went and found my Thundercats bed sheet from eBay and put that on there. <laughs> um, they went and uh, found the motorcycle helmet that I had on a shelf. They found an old flat Eric doll, and all of these things are in the back of shop that only if you really look will you see. You know, there's like a Charlie Brown poster on the wall and Charlie Brown was one of the first big garage MCs who unfortunately passed away. But Bhutan mm. is a huge fan of him. So there's Charlie Brown posters and signed Ian Wright posters and Dennis, Bur- Dennis Burkamp posters on the wall and so many things that spoke to the era. Backstreet Boys, can we talk Backstreet Boys? <laughs> yes, we can. Yes, we can. Um, all right. So, I'm, you know, what? I've not actually told anyone this before. So, you're going to get something that I've not said anywhere. That scene was originally written um, as "Say My Name, Destiny's Child," and uh, we had to change the scene. Well, I had to rewrite it with a different song because they wanted too much money and we couldn't afford it. Around you, say baby, I love you. If you ain't running game, say my name, say my name. You acting kind of shady, ain't calling me baby. Why the sudden change? Say my name, say my name. If no one is around you, say baby, I love you. If you ain't running game, say my name, say my name. You acting kind of
say my name. You acting kind of shady, ain't calling me baby. So the scene that we're talking about is a, a scene in the movie where one of the characters basically tries to sweet talk his ex-girlfriend where he steals some song lyrics. And in the original version of the script, he used Say My Name and she cottons on towards the end. But in the version that made the movie, it's Backstreet Boys, I Want It That Way. And how long did it take for you to clock that he was saying those words before? Third Lord? <laughs> <laughs> so it's literally after you are my fire cow <laughs> I, like, I was like he's gonna call backstreet boys here <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's yeah. it's so good I, I i think listen i think weirdly destiny has made the right choice for you and that that works better than say my name i think so yeah in your face yeah. destiny's child charging too much money My fire, the one desire, believe when I say I want it that way. But we are two worlds apart, can't reach to your heart when interesting hearing like from people like about how you know that kind of thing and I know that a lot of the time it's kind of it's lawyers and it's record companies and all that thing making the decision for people and stuff but I remember speaking to Todd Phillips about I think it was one of his films before the hangover films and he wanted to play um they wanted uh Guns and Roses and they wanted a million pounds for it and he was like fuck you Axl Rose kind of thing <laughs> it's crazy isn't it well, the, the really, really difficult thing is that it went down to the wire. So it was on the 11th hour that we had to make the decision. And poor Jordan. So Jordan, who actually had to say the lines, who plays two times in the film, had auditioned with Say My Name. That was his audition scene. And it was Say My Name. And he nailed it in the audition. We made him do a recall. And then we made him do it as a chemistry test. And then we did it in rehearsals. And then when it came to the actual shooting day, the night before I had to rewrite it and he got it the night before. And so he learned this song. And again, you know, Jordan's 20, he was 24, 23 when we shot this. So he didn't grow up with that song. <laughs> that song was, he was a baby when that song was a, was a thing. So he didn't have it in his head already. He didn't know those words. So he had to learn the song and he had to learn the scene again in a new way when he had this other thing literally burnt into his retina from casting. So he did an amazing job. He really pulled it out of the bag. Ah, absolutely. That's so great. Did you play, I mean, I imagine like the club scene, a great example in terms of the music on set, but was there a lot of music around on set? Because I don't know how it worked with all the, you know, when there's diegetic music within the film, if you'd already cleared stuff or if that was something that you had to do once you'd finished filming, you know, but did you play music on set? 
Yeah. I mean, in the process, I play music all the time. So mm. when we were turning around the camera, we had a big old speaker and I'd play stuff anyway. It was just really nice having the whole crew dancing between shots. But in terms of the scenes, um, we only really played music in situ when it was vital to the scene. So yeah. for instance, the radio argument without giving too much away when the two boys are fighting over the radio dial, those songs we played in um, while we were shooting the scene because obviously you've got Kidda played by Redder in the backseat mouthing along uh, to the song while it plays. So we needed to make sure that um, those songs were cleared. So that scene in particular, we played music in. I want to ask you what that first day was like of starting to film your first full-length feature film. Listen, it's been brilliant to watch your journey and and I'm I'm just getting the chance to sit in a theatre and watch this film was amazing. But I was so, I just want to know what that, what it felt like on that first day, whether you used the word action or not, or yeah, yeah, how was it? It was one of the best days of my life because I started out as an actor at eight years old and I think I've learned a lot uh, in terms of being a writer and being a director through osmosis, through reading and learning scripts through my childhood and teens and 20s as an actor and being around the best kind of directors uh, and the worst kind and um, learning from them and knowing what I wanted the set that I ran to feel like was a huge thing for me. Wanting to make sure that the actors felt safe and protected mm -hmm. and loved on set were really important things for me. So I made the speech on the first day where I just knew that I had to set a tone and it was very self-deprecating and very silly. And I had to be very, very cognizant of the fact that crying probably wouldn't go down well with the gaffers. So I did everything I could to let everybody know how much it meant to me, but also, and more importantly, how much this film could mean to 15 year old me. Because 15-year-old me who exists today has never seen a film like this through the London lens, through the black lens. And Pirates is ultimately a human story. And so many people from different backgrounds, different genders can find some of themselves in these three characters. And that is really important to me that it is wide and that people get to see it. But for those that have never seen themselves on camera this way, it's going to do something special, I hope to make sure that the crew understood that that was what we were going for was really important. So to answer your question, honestly, it was a really, really emotional, special moment on that day one, because I recognised that we were starting something that could have been really special. And because of the crew, because of the actors, and because of the weird alchemy of a group of people getting together to do this thing, I feel like we achieved it. You know, I said how it made me feel and all the things that I loved about it, but also just made me want to go to a, a big clubby club afterwards as well. Just <laughs> Big, big clubby club, amazing. <laughs> I really hope that people start saying some of that stuff because just hearing you <sighs> say made me so happy. <laughs> um, the big clubby club in the movie is, uh, is twice as nice, obviously. And recreating that was awesome because I'm sure you'll remember from the era that was the big, big clubby club. And to be able to make that a thing, I'm hoping people who were there when they watch Pirates will scream when they see the Club Coliseum sign, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it was a bit of a DeLorean for me, to be honest, as well, at places in terms of being at MTV and, and going out to Ibiza every weekend to film Dance Floor Chart and things like that and falling off the stage, introducing Fats and Small and stuff like that. It just... <laughs> 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 the 
it was a lot of memories that were reminded going, oh, whoa, that happened. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh my God, I remember that song. That song was terrible. Hey, what's wrong with you? So you gave the crowd some comedy before the comedy song. That's amazing. That is Yeah, awesome. I was a crowd fluffer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's next? Do you know? I've written it. Yay, of course you have. <laughs> yeah, no, I've written it and um, we are, yeah, there's hopefully stuff that we'll be able to shout about very soon about the next film. But um, I want to be making it next year and we're on track in terms of our timeline. But yeah. essentially it's taking all of the lessons from Pirates and putting them into this new project and just trying to really enjoy the process of being a writer-director and making films that I've never seen before. So more of that, hopefully, is next. But more than anything, right now, I'm trying to enjoy this moment. Enjoy posters going up on London Underground. Enjoy people getting to see these amazing boys. Enjoy the trailer being on the front of Venom and other massive movies. It's just wild. It's all wild. Have you been to a cinema and your trailers come on? I nearly peed my pants at Venom. Having been to the cinema with you, I know how much you enjoy trailers. So the idea that a trailer of your film is coming on before a film is just like... Uh, I'll tell you what's been really sweet is loads of friends sending me photos or videos of them being in the cinema. And you sort of see this camera sort of shaking into focus when they're like, oh my God, I'm going to do all this. Um, When they're going to watch the French Dispatch or whatever and it popping up the trailer popping up before it and it's just it's just really cool and also it's amazing that my friends are pirating my trailer and sending it to me through their mobile phones <laughs> switch off your phones yeah not yet <laughs> yeah, right. um and listen gotta say as well congratulations on on the recognition that the film's already getting you know in terms of the british independent film awards which is so deserving and so brilliant you must be over the moon about that as well well <laughs> okay, so um, <laughs> <laughs> the day before it was announced, I was told um, by my distributors that they'd had a whisper that we were the most nominated long-listed film, right? But it came at the end of a meeting that was so mind-blowing um, in terms of all the things that we're doing, the press that's coming up and where the, what's going on. And we're like, oh yeah, we're going to put 350 posters on the underground and all these different things. And just, I'm sat there going, oh my God, what, what? <laughs> and everything that they told me just sent me my mind into another place. So I didn't actually register this, that it had happened and it was happening. And then the next day I was on a shoot and my mate Yemi, who's an amazing director and a very good friend of mine, he texted me and went, oh my God, nominated thing and that was when it landed for me the next day and I was with my brother which was awesome because give him my love I will I will we just had like a big cuddle and it was just awesome so to be nominated I mean it's long listed so we don't know for sure if this is going to be the case on the short list but to be on the long list to write a director and to have all of my my actors uh nominated for breakthrough it's just beyond anything I could dream of. And hopefully the boys will at least get their day in the sun uh, when it comes to the shortlist. That's why I'm really hopeful because they deserve it. As do you, because I'm so excited about the stories that you're going to tell because I feel like you you know the right, the right focus to pull in terms of, and I mean that in terms of like you saying that this is a story that you've never seen, you know, of a London you've never seen on film, um, of characters you've never seen on film. And I think that that's from the, the documentaries that you've made, you know, and that journey that you've made through that, you, I feel anyways, a kind of friend and a fan of what you're doing is that 
you that's given you a real insight into the important stories to tell uh whether you know and they can be told with comedy they can be told through uh experience personal experience but i feel like that's part of your journey is that you're making sure that that camera is focused on the right stories thank you that's really kind and 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 definitely documentaries have influenced the way in which i look at telling stories because Mm. um it's really easy to get it wrong and um i really care about making sure that uh we're telling stories in an authentic way and uh, you know this all has come from a good and a genuine place and i just really hope that that chimes with people when they sit down to see it so yeah i mean like i said i've already written the next one and i am so excited about telling that story because again it's tackling issues that i care about in in what yeah. i think is quite an entertaining way so the next thing is all about identity and who we think we are versus who the world sees us as being and i'd like to think that this film tackles friendship in quite uh, a special way with an amazing banging soundtrack as a background <laughs> <laughs> And I wanted to ask, lastly, before we go about, just quickly about, in terms of film and music, when you were growing up, what were the films that you connected with or resonated with in terms of how the music was important within the storytelling? Are there any specific films for you? Yeah, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Do the Right Thing. Um, You know, the way that Fight the Power just punched me in my face, or even that intro sequence um, with Rosie Perez just dancing hard to that track. You know, the films of Spike Lee definitely did it for me in a lot of ways because music was such a huge part of it. Even something like Mo Better Blues, where music is part of the story. he made music emotional um and those films for me as a kid were just absolutely massive even something as silly as nuns on the run do you remember that robbie coltrane movie and <laughs> yeah had, eric idol wasn't it as well eric idol robbie coltrane <laughs> nuns on the run and the, the that track do oh yeah the one from ferris bueller <laughs> exactly
so even those, you know, when you talk about Ferris Bueller, those 80s movies as well, they were all there. I mean, so many songs connected to those films and connected to those montage sequences (laughs) were all part of my formative years. So... I mean, I could talk about this all day. There are so yeah. many. Do you know what's really funny? I, I was had the absolute pleasure of chatting to Hans Zimmer the other day about, I mean, I got 40 minutes with him, the idea that I was even just skimming the surface of his work. So we kind of said we would talk about Dune and Bond and then see what else came up. And do you know what came up? Cool run-ins. Because he was like, he's so not precious about his work. And he remembers at the time someone said to him, why are you going to, why are you scoring? And he's like, because I love the story. I love the characters. I love the way that it's written. And I loved hearing him talk about it, about how he just loved making that score. And, um, and it was so bizarre. You know, we talked Bond, June, Cool Runnings and Boss Baby. That was the four films that we talked about. But I love that. I love about leaving your preconceptions and your kind of, you know, your you're whatever it is at the door and you just uh, you know go in and he's infectious his enthusiasm for what he does is absolutely infectious they're the people that I gravitate towards you know like this this weird journey as a as a writer director has made me has allowed me to sit down with some of my heroes so far and just talking to people and and people giving me time people like Danny Boyle taking me for lunch and people like Joe um Joe Cornish sitting down and, and chatting to me about their projects I've, I've learned so much from these conversations from people whose films have really influenced me. You know, we talk about music and film and growing up. I mean, Trainsporting yeah. yeah. and what that did, like that soundtrack, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like those, those records are seminal, but it's, it's like eight of them. It's not just one. I, I just remember being a teenager in this, this, this movie where this guy goes into the toilet being this thing that blew my mind, both in terms of how it sounded and how it looked. And um, I, I just feel very, very lucky, Edith, honestly, uh, that not only are my heroes giving me time to talk to me, but also that I'm being given the opportunity to invest in other new talent and invest in young actors like the leads in the film. And hopefully this film will inspire 12-year-old me, 15-year-old me, that in the same way that Matthew Kasovitz's film inspired me, going, wow, that can be cinematic too. That yeah. world can be a story told to everyone as well. If you think about that, um, the run-in scene with To Lust for Life, if you took that music off that scene, it would not have the same impact that, that it does. And that's a a great example of the kind of power that music has in terms of how it makes you feel and what it does to the energy of a scene even. Absolutely. And I think we we can take for granted how difficult it is to pick the right records for those moments and for those scenes. And all of my heroes have done that. So I really hope that this film lands uh, in terms of the way that we're using music for others. That's what I really, really hope happens. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wrote down the music has a particular place uh, as a way in the way that you use certain tracks. Every track has almost its kind of unique connection to the film in whatever way you're using it. You've done an amazing job, Reg. It's so great. Um, Listen, I'm going to let you go because I know you're a busy man and um, thank you for your time. I can't wait for people to see the film and I'll see you at a podium soon, I imagine. Can't wait. Can't (laughs) wait to hear those speeches. (laughs) Stop it. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Honestly, I'm so glad that you love it and that that you've had me on because I love what you're doing with soundtracking. I always have done. I've always said it. And it's the weirdest and the coolest thing to be on. Have a great day, love. I'll hope to see you soon. You too. Take care, babe. Bye-bye.
From the soundtrack to Pirates, that's 1999 by Groove Chronicles. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Reggie Yates. Yay! Bravo! But before I tell you what's coming up, um, uh, a little word from our friends at Wine52 who've got an early Christmas present for you and we have a little early Christmas present from me. How would you like to try some incredible top quality wines for free? Of course you would. Well, let me introduce you to Wine52. They are a monthly wine discovery club. And instead of stocking thousands of wines from hundreds of producers, Wine52 only selects the very best of the best. Expert wine tasters search out the most exciting wine regions and top undiscovered winemakers in the world. And they bring them right to your door. Now, I've always wanted to have a greater appreciation of wine and regions and flavours and basically know what I'm drinking. And Wine52 has given me a bit of an opportunity to do that. So how does it work? Each month, they send members three wines and you can customise to your taste by choosing uh, white, red or a mixture. They're so sure you'll love their wines that you can grab your first case completely free. All you need to do is go to wine52.com forward slash sound and cover the postage costs of £5.95 and you'll get three bottles delivered right to your door. Also included is their magazine Glug, which brings you the story of the producers and insight about wine and travel from each region. After your free case, you'll be part of the monthly wine club, no minimum commitment, and you can try it, see what you think. If it's not for you, pause or cancel any time. So remember, that's wine52.com forward slash sound to claim your case today. wine52.com forward slash sound. Now, my huge thanks to Reggie. Oh, so good. So proud of you, mate, for taking the time to talk to us. Pirates is out in cinemas from the 26th of November this Friday. And I really did mean everything I said about it to Reggie. It is absolutely blimmin' brilliant. Now, we'll put up a Spotify playlist for the show via edithbowman.com, which, to be honest, if you're looking for a really good playlist of garage music, then that's the playlist that you need to search for and you need to subscribe to. Uh, It's also the place, edithbowman.com, where you can catch up with every single episode of the podcast, including that chat with Hans Zimmer. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK, and please do leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you get a second. Now, next up, talking House of Gucci. It is none other. Actually, he also talks about IKEA shelves. It is none other than Jared Leto. Yep, him. 30 Seconds to Mars. You know, award-winning actor, Jared Leto. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs> <laughs> 